Well, I'm Ken Wilkinson. During the war, I flew with 19 Squadron in the Battle of Britain. Well, on 1st of September 39, I wrote myself off. I thought, you've got no chance of lasting through whatever it's going to be, because it was quite obvious that the way the Germans were moving, they were going to make a hell of a war out of it. And uh, so I was ready for war. It's our country. You die for your country. Say war is a total war. And it certainly was in England in 1940. Um, all the stuff that was being thrown at us. And uh, when you think that all the thousands of citizens that were being killed by this, this absurd bombing. Uh, still, they had to pay for it, didn't they? Yes, you lost people. Friends that, you know, didn't come back. Yeah. You have to get into an attitude and to make sure that, uh, uh, basically, you're as cold as a fish. And, uh, once somebody has failed to return, that's it. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. I know there must be a number of pubs in Great Britain into which veterans, Oxford and Cambridge brain trust types, and World War II historians pack nightly to debate the great what-ifs of history, especially British history. And I have a question for them. If you had to choose one World War II battle or campaign on which the fate of the free world rested, which would it be, in your opinion? I would answer, hands down, the Battle of Britain. I think I hear a voice from the back saying, Well, state your case, mate. And here it is. But I'm not going to give you the short answer. By the time we're done here, You'll know a little or a lot more about Britain's desperate fight to rid the skies of the German Luftwaffe than you thought you did. And you'll also hear a new sense of just how close it all was. And I mean razor thin. All of you here listening, internationally, know the story of Hitler's Germany and their sweep across Europe in 1939 and early 1940, leaving only the tiny island of Great Britain, separated from Nazi-occupied France and Western Europe, only by the 20-mile-wide English Channel. I mention the word internationally because many of you are going to be shocked in Part 2 of this story to find that a handful or more of your countrymen participated in this classic battle for freedom. They came. They left your country because they sensed there was a battle for freedom going on in the world, and they were needed. Just prior to the air battle which defines the Battle of Britain, the British attempted to free France from the Nazi Blitz, sending the cream of the British army across to France. And they got slapped hard by the Germans, who forced the entire British army to flee to Dunkirk within three weeks of fighting, for an ignominious rescue via every kind of boat, ship, fishing vessel, you name it, the British could supply. German bombers did destroy over 200 ships in that armada, and a lot of good men were lost. But the British were still able to evacuate 224,000 men who would end up fighting another day. In early June of 1940, one day after the British Army had made their desperate escape back across the English Channel, 
two German high officers, General Hoffmann von Waldo and General Erhard Milk, stood on the broad beach at Dunkirk, looking at the huge mess of war materials left behind by the retreating Brits. Thousands of shoes lay on the beach, as far as the eye could see, shoes left behind by the soldiers who had to wade out to the wading boats. Left behind were trucks, big guns, stacks and stacks of rifles, empty food cans and bottles, and the detritus of war. General Waldo kicked at a bottle with his boot and said, "'Here's the grave of the British hopes in this war.' General Milk looked out beyond the wrecked and smoking British ships towards England and said they're not buried yet. We have no time to waste.' Later that day, both would be in attendance at Field Marshal Gurin's armored train located some miles inland. Gurin was jubilant. He recited Germany's stunning sweep over Holland, Belgium, and northern France. He made his way among all the tables, backslapping, smiling. Then he moved to the head of the table to address them. He began by telling his men that there were already feelers out from certain French sources suggesting that an armistice might be in the works for England. Then Goering said how pleased he and the Fuhrer were that the British army had been wiped out at Dunkirk after experiencing terrifying blows from the German Luftwaffe. General Milk spoke up, offering the ugly truth that the British army had not been wiped out and that the invasion of Great Britain should begin without delay. And if the Germans were to give the British four to five weeks to recover their pride, it would be too late. Goering at first was doubtful, but he came round to Milk's point of view. The next day, Goering met with the Fuhrer and laid out the plan. It was a good plan. The Germans would begin an airborne invasion immediately, beginning with a massive bomber and dive bomber attack on the south coast of England, followed by paratroopers who would seize the airfields, allowing German fighter planes to create havoc at will. Troop transport ships would land at selected ports. These men would fan out across the English countryside. the British ports would be put out of action, including war materials from the U.S. But Hitler, after listening to the full plan, ordered Goering to do nothing. He was convinced that the British, being reasonable people, would see that their position was hopeless, and Hitler was counting on the British to accept a peace settlement that he would soon be offering. The milk Goering plan was placed on a back burner, but only temporarily. The fall of Britain was very likely hanging in the balance right at that moment, because they weren't prepared, they weren't ready. Their army had just been soundly defeated. The end result, though, was that they were given another few weeks to pull it all together, this time with the capable leadership of the newly appointed Prime Minister, Winston Churchill. When a week ago today, Mr. Speaker, I asked the House as the occasion for a statement I feared it would be my hard lot to announce the greatest military disaster in our long history. I thought, and some good judges agreed with me, that perhaps 20 or 30,000 men might be re-embarked. But it certainly seemed that the whole of the French First Army and the whole of the British Expeditionary Force north of the Amiens-Abbeville gap would be broken up in the open field or else would have to capitulate for lack of food and ammunition. 
These were the hard and heavy tidings for which I called upon the house and the nation to prepare themselves a week ago. The whole root and core and brain of the British Army on which and around which we were to build and are to build the great British armies in the later years of the war seemed about to perish upon the field or be led into an ignominious and starving captivity. The enemy attacked us on all sides with great strength and fierceness. And their main power, the power of their far more numerous air force, was thrown into the battle or else concentrated upon Dunkirk and the beaches. Pressing in upon the narrow exit, both from the east and from the west, the enemy began to fire with cannon upon the beaches by which alone the shipping could approach or depart. They sowed magnetic mines in the channels and seas. They sent repeated waves of hostile aircraft, sometimes more than a hundred strong in one formation, to cast our bombs upon the single pier that remained and upon the sand dunes on which the troops had their only shelter. Their U-boats, one of which were sunk, and their motor launches took the toll of the vast traffic which now began. For four or five days an intense struggle reigned. All their armored divisions, or what was left of them, together with great masses of infantry and artillery, hurled themselves in vain upon the ever-narrowing, ever-contracting appendix within which the British and French armies fought. Meanwhile, the Royal Navy, with the willing help of countless merchant seamen, strained every nerve to embark the British and Allied troops. 220 light warships and 650 other vessels were engaged. They had to operate upon the difficult coast, and often in adverse weather, under an almost ceaseless hail of bombs and an increasing concentration of artillery fire. Nor were the seas, as I have said, themselves free from mines and torpedoes. It was in conditions such as these that our men carried on with little or no rest for days and nights on end, making trip after trip across the dangerous waters, bringing with them always men whom they had rescued. The numbers they have brought back are the measure of their devotion and their courage. The hospital ships which brought off many thousands of British and French wounded, being so plainly marked, were a special target for Nazi bombs. But the men and women on board them never faltered in their duty. Meanwhile, the Royal Air Force, which had already been intervening in the battle, so far as its range would allow, you know, from our home bases, now used part of its main metropolitan fighter strength and struck at the German bombers and at the fighters which in large numbers protected them. This struggle was protracted and fierce. Suddenly the scene had cleared. The crash and thunder and for the moment 
but only for the moment, died away. A miracle of deliverance achieved by valor, by perseverance, by perfect discipline, by faultless service, by resource, by skill, by unconquerable fidelity, it manifests to us all. The enemy was hurled back by the retreating British troops. He was so roughly handled that he did not carry their departure seriously. Sir, we must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations. But there was a victory inside this deliverance which should be noted. It was gained by the Air Force. Many of our soldiers coming back have not seen the Air Force at work. They saw only the bombers, which escaped its protective attack. They underrate its achievements. I've heard much talk of this. And that is why I go out of my way to say this. I will tell you about it. This was a great trial of strength between the British and German Air Forces. Can you conceive a greater objective for the Germans in the air than to make evacuation from these beaches impossible and to sink all these ships which were displayed almost to the extent of thousands. Could there have been an objective of greater military importance and significance for the whole purpose of the war of this? They tried hard and they were beaten back. They were frustrated in their task. We got the army away, and they have paid fourfold for any losses which they have inflicted. Sir, when we consider how much greater would be our advantage in defending the air above this island against an overseas attack, I must say that I find in these facts a sure basis upon which practical and reassuring thoughts may rest. I will pay my tribute to these Young Airmen, the great French army, was very largely, for the time being, cast back and disturbed by the onrush of a few thousands of armored vehicles. May it not also be that the cause of civilization itself will be defended by the skill and devotion of a few thousand Airmen? There never has been, I suppose, in all the world, in all the history of war, such an opportunity for use. The Knights of the Round Table, the Crusaders, all fall back into the past, not only distant, but prosaic. These young men going forth every morn to guard their native land and all that we stand for, holding in their hands these instruments of colossal and shattering power, of whom it may be said that every morn brought forth a noble chance, and every chance brought forth a noble night, deserve our gratitude, and to all the brave men, in so many ways and on so many occasions, are ready and continue ready to give life and all to their native land. Nevertheless, 
our thankfulness at the escape of our army and so many men whose loved ones have passed through an agonizing week, but not blind us to the fact that what happened in France and Belgium is a colossal military disaster. The French army has been weakened, the Belgian army has been lost, a large part of those fortified lines upon which so much faith had been reposed is gone, many valuable mining districts and factories have passed into the enemy's possession, the whole of the channel ports in his hands, with all the tragic consequences that follow from that, and we must expect another blow to be struck almost immediately at us or at France. We are told, sir, that Herr Hitler had a plan for invading the British Isles. This has often been thought of before. When Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year with his flat bottom boats and his grand army, he was told by someone, there are bitter weeds in England. There are certainly a great many more of them since the British Expeditionary Force returned. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to try to do. That is the resolve of His Majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of Parliament and the nation. The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if which I do not for a moment believe this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving in our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old By late June of 1940, peacefielers were reaching Churchill through various neutral sources. The Vatican was suggesting England consider a peace treaty. Sweden's king suggested the same. Then Spain. Churchill stood strongly against all these overtures, writing back to the king of Spain that he would not consider any such agreement until Germany restored the free and independent lives of Czechoslovakia, Poland, Norway, Denmark, Holland, Belgium and above all, France. What Churchill needed most was time. The retreat at Dunkirk had cost him weapons and armaments, ships, 
and most importantly, the pride of much of his fighting force. Britain's 5,000 miles of coastline were sparsely defended by a home guard consisting of volunteers, many of them old men and boys, armed with old shotguns, ancient weapons, and sometimes even pitchforks. Rumors were reaching Churchill that generals and cabinet ministers were unsure of which way to turn. So he called them to an evening meeting in his hole in the ground beneath Whitehall, close to the House of Parliament and government offices. He seated them at the long table there, meant for just such conferences, and waited for the clamor of voices to settle down. Churchill was standing, cigar in hand, not far from the empty seat at the head of the table, his seat, and when the noise from the group calmed, and finally quieted. The only sound that could be heard was the hum of the fans which brought fresh air into that room. He waved a cigar to direct the men's attention to the room itself, which was well furnished, with maps, file cabinets, and all the necessities for commanding a war from a bunker. "'This is the room from which I'll direct the war,' he said. He then pointed at the empty chair. "'And if the invasion takes place, that's where I'll sit, in that chair.' Then he placed the cigar back in his mouth, and added, And I'll sit there until either the Germans are driven out, or they carry me out dead. When the meeting ended, there was left no doubt that the new Prime Minister of Britain was not about to agree to any peace solution, was prepared to fight to the death to defend his homeland, and could amply communicate that to all his countrymen. There was no back down in Churchill. England had been waking up, slowly, to the idea that they might be invaded for months. But now the prospect looked real, and people all wanted to help. All they needed was direction. Blackout measures were taken everywhere, even going as far as covering train windows with blue paint. Street lamp posts were painted with black and white stripes so emergency vehicles could see them if all the lights were out. Beaches were fortified with anti-tank pylons. First aid drills occurred everywhere in London. Bomb shelters were created. Everything became a national duty. On one poster, the headline read, It's waste to waste waste. The elimination of waste in every form during wartime is a national duty and provides an opportunity for all local housewives to win the war. Please keep your waste paper, cardboard, magazines, carpets and textile waste, bottles, jars, bones, and tins separate from other refuse. Remember, raw material is war material. As early as January 1940, Churchill had requested that over one million women were needed for work in munitions factories, and they quickly signed up. The biggest threat to Britain was the German Luftwaffe, Air Force, which was the most well-equipped and destructive air force in the world at that time. Yes, it had strengths, but it also had weaknesses. Its greatest asset was the German propaganda machine that constantly overstated its capabilities and numbers. Their two most dangerous mid-level bombers were the Dornier 17 and the Henkel. The Dornier 17 featured a bulging glass section at the front which housed four crewmen, and this plane was featured often in the 1969 movie Battle of Britain, which was heavy and accurate on air battle scenes. Both the Dornier 17 and the Henkel had weaknesses, those being a number of blind spots open to Britain's fighter planes, the RAF Spitfires and Hurricanes. At the outset of the war, Britain had 650 fighter planes. Germany had 2,500 bombers and fighter planes, 
outnumbering Britain four to one in the air. Germany was also very proud of its Stuka dive bombers and was planning on using them to devastate selected targets from radar stations on the British coastline to ships, munitions factories, and other selected targets. The Stuka had been used to great effect against Polish ships in the Baltic, Polish troops on the Vistula Plain, British troop transports off Norway, and Allied infantry in Belgium and France. The Stuka over Britain, however, proved to be decidedly vulnerable to British fast fighter planes, which soon realized that when the Stuka peeled off for a dive, it had no armament to protect itself from being attacked on the rear, and the Stuka could only dive at 150 miles an hour, while the British fighter planes could easily exceed that speed. What resulted in the battle over Britain was a daily massacre of Stuka dive bombers. For fighter planes, the Germans had the ME-109, or Messerschmitt. The only problem there was that Germany didn't have enough of them. Airspeed, 354 miles per hour. But it had a short fuel range, and many never returned from the bases on the French coast. Despite their shortcomings, the German Luftwaffe had assembled at captured bases on the French coast, just 20 miles from Dover, and they were a fearsome force. Goering and his minions had many reasons to believe that the Brits would buckle. The crews had had nothing but success so far in dealing out death and destruction to countries who had never done them any harm. And they were having great fun throwing barbs at the British people, who would soon be bowing at their knees, or so they thought. The RAF had been greatly weakened by the failed French campaign. In the first ten days alone, 232 RAF fighters had been shot down, destroyed on the ground, or captured. Gurian expected a feeble air defense now, but he would soon realize he had miscalculated Britain's ability to stand up for themselves in times of disaster. Hitler was not even looking at Britain as a threat. He was sure they would fall like a half-baked cake. He even saw them as his Aryan brothers, of sorts. His eyes were on Russia, and he did not see them in the same light. He probably also knew that an attack on England would hurry America into the war they had been avoiding thus far. The cause for isolationism having been firmly planted with American sacrifices in World War I, in the war to end all wars, or so it was called, but it was really the war that generated another world war. We'll return with the Battle of Britain, Part 1, right after these sponsor messages. Hi everyone! The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. 
No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And now, back to our story. One of the best hires that Britain ever made was that of the Canadian-born newspaper publisher Lord Beaverbrook, who took charge of their aircraft building program. They had relied upon their older hurricanes, which were nearly decimated in the three-week war over France, and would have been decimated had not Lord Beaverbrook convinced Churchill that Britain should not give its last fighter airplanes up in a fruitless war over France when they should be looking at protecting their own soil, and that they needed to build more Spitfires. And so the Spitfire, developed in 1938, but now equipped with bulletproof windows and other upgrades, was rushed into production, and 446 new fighters came rolling out of British factories in just 30 days. Those being 30 days of 24-hour, 7-day-a-week work. Not a minute was missed. When the heat of battle, I think one forgot everything else other than the, well, in the battle, the adrenaline started to flow. The worry was before, sitting on the ground, waiting, scrambling, climbing up. Once you got into battle, you, your whole, um, whole concentration was on either trying to shoot somebody else down and avoid being shot down yourself. So you had eyes all over the place as well as trying to shoot at aircraft. Well, for a while after the war, nobody wanted to know much about it. But as the years go by and people become interested, there's a sense of pride, a sense of achievement, if nothing else, that we were, uh, I hesitate to say the, the amateurs, but we were, compared to the Germans, uh, a crowd of chaps pulled together at the last minute, the desire to fly, to, to protect the country and so on. And uh, there is pride, of course there is, of, of being one of the few. Well, I, I think you've got to go back to the worst part of it all was waiting in dispersal. Once you got into the aeroplane and felt it through the seat of your pants, life quietened down a bit. Um, and then there was a strange feeling of almost a sense of beauty. You saw these brave little Spitfires climbing up against a Teutonic monster. Um, RAF roundels shining out and, you know, and a, a feeling of um, it's so good to be involved. I suppose it, we were really fortunate in, in being uh, posted to a Spitfire squadron, which was really the best you could possibly be. Uh, the Hurricane boys would probably deny that uh, the Spitfire was superior to it, but uh, we, we reckoned the Spitfire just had the edge. Of course, the Hurricanes uh, shot down more uh, Germans than we did in, in Spitfires, but then there were more squadrons and, uh, um, and, and far more pilots too, you see, flying Hurricanes and Spitfires. But uh, a Spitfire was a wonderful plane, beautifully uh, uh, tailored to adapt itself to a pilot and it was very, very sensitive to uh, control. Lovely plane. And in the same way as you get very attached to a car, you got very attached to your own, uh, you know, the plane that was allotted to you. I suddenly came across two ME109s and uh, I attacked one of them and I shot him down. And before I could look round, I had an explosion in my 
engine, and was obvious the other chap had fired at me and hit me. And my engine stopped. So this was a very precarious position to be in. So I had difficulty, I managed to bail out. I suppose I was about five or six thousand feet height when I when I came down. When I came down, when I came down, I was over the when I came out of the cloud, I was over the sea, about five hundred feet, and my parachute opened at that moment. Now you don't have to be a brain surgeon to know that uh, it was it would be less than three seconds before I hit the sea if I, my parachute hadn't opened. So I was that close to, um, I didn't, I worked it out afterwards. I didn't work it out at the time. I'd love to show you a photo of the Spitfire. For those of you who don't know what a Spitfire looks like, it was covered with brown camo paint and had a bubble cockpit hood and a small rounded tail fin. To make it identifiable to friend and foe alike, it had a large bullseye, if you will, with a red lion's head in the center, ringed by white, then blue, then orange. Where the Hurricane could do 325 miles per hour, the Spitfire could run at 379 miles per hour, and she carried eight 303 caliber machine guns. I saw one at an air show, and they are fast and nimble. And I'm not taking anything away from the Hawker Hurricanes, which were better armored and had good range. It was both planes that helped win the greatest air battle for freedom in the 20th century, and put a huge dent in Hitler's ability to protect his airspace from 1940 onward. As it turned out, the Hurricanes were largely sent after the German bombers, while the Spitfires went after Germany's fighter planes, a little-known fact of the Battle of Britain. The Hurricanes, by the way, did shoot down more enemy planes than did the vaunted Spitfires. But the Spitfire pilots will tell you, yeah, they were after the bombers, which couldn't defend themselves as well and weren't as fast, while the Spitfires had to battle with the very fast and nimble planes like the Messerschmitts. That controversy will go on forever. They were all heroes in this battle. It didn't matter. Britain had been working on radar since 1938, and by 1940 had set up a ring of radar bases on their eastern coast that could detect any approaching ships or planes. They called it their Invisible Bastion, or Wall of Defense. Germany also knew about radar. Aha! We didn't hear much about their capability there. They had a system called Freya, which was still under development in 1940. What many people don't know is that Germany had made a major blunder when they assigned development to their navy, the leaders of which really saw no pressing need to develop radar. So when war broke out between Germany and Britain, Germany had no radar capabilities yet. When Germany started sending squadrons of bombers toward Britain's coast, Britain had at least a few minutes to scramble their fighter planes and prepare to take out a number of bombers and fighters, usually on their return trip. They didn't have enough time to stop the constant destruction of their coastal air bases and the bombing of their port cities, and soon London, but enough to knock down more German planes than they themselves lost. Hitler first discussed the idea of an invasion at a May 1940 meeting with Grand Admiral Erich Raeder, who stressed the difficulties of a land invasion and his own preference for blockade. Likewise, Chief of Staff Yodel's June report described invasion as a last resort once the British economy had been damaged and the Luftwaffe had full air superiority. In Britain, Churchill described the Great Invasion Scare as serving a very useful purpose, 
by keeping every man and woman tuned to a high pitch of readiness. Historian Len Dayton stated that on July 10th, Churchill advised the War Cabinet that invasion could be ignored, as it would be a most hazardous and suicidal operation for Germany. So we find that Churchill himself really didn't believe that Hitler would do it. But he did believe in keeping his own people on edge and working for a common cause. Hitler met his army chiefs, von Braschitz and Halder, at the Berchtesgaden on July 13, 1940, where they presented detailed plans on the assumption that the Navy would provide safe transport. Von Broschitz and Halder were surprised that Hitler took no interest in the invasion plans, unlike his usual attitude toward military operations. But on July 16th, he issued Directive No. 16, ordering preparations for Operation Sea Lion. The Navy insisted on a narrow beachhead and an extended period for landing troops. The Army rejected these plans. The Luftwaffe could begin an air attack in August. Hitler held a meeting of his Army and Navy chiefs on July 31st. The Navy said September 22nd was the earliest possible date and proposed postponement until the following year, but Hitler preferred September 1940. He then told von Broschitz and Halder that he would decide on the landing operation 8 to 14 days after the air attack began. The defeat of France in June of 1940 introduced the prospect for the first time of independent air action against Britain. In 1940, the Luftwaffe would undertake a strategic offensive on its own and independent of other services, according to an April 1944 German account of their military mission. Goering was convinced that strategic bombing could win objectives that were beyond the Army and Navy and gain political advantages in the Third Reich for the Luftwaffe and himself. He expected air warfare to decisively force Britain to negotiate. You need to picture Goering here. He had risen all the way up with the Reich since the late 20s. He had been awarded the Blue Max for his abilities as a fighter pilot in World War I. It was Goering who had created the Gestapo, which he handed to Heinrich Himmler in 1934. And by 1940, Goering was the second most powerful man in Germany. He traveled in an armored boxcar attended to by a masseur. He had a tailor who made uniforms to fit his now corpulent body. He had been addicted to morphine for nearly 20 years. After the fall of France, he was appointed to Reich Marshal, having power over all the Nazi generals in their combined forces. He was the head of the Luftwaffe, and he had a huge ego, so if England was to be conquered, it would be by air, by Goering, so he could receive all the praise for bringing England to its knees. And he was no doubt one big reason why British air power was underestimated and why Britain was able to win the war in the skies. But I'm getting ahead of myself. It's now July of 1940. Germany had decided on its plan of attack, which included a three-phase attack. First, a campaign over the Channel to sink all British merchant ships, to attack all Royal Navy ships, bases, and installations, and to destroy or drive out of the sky any Royal Air Force fighters, Second would come an air blitz to destroy all RAF air bases and aircraft factories. And third would come Operation Sea Lion, which would involve an invasion of the now devastated British coastline and interior by combined German forces. The RAF Fighter Command had two major fighting forces ready to defend against this invasion. If this sounds like they already knew the battle plan, you're right, they did. How could this be? I see many of you holding up your hands. 
Ah, yes. Enigma. The name for the German high-command communication device about the size of a typewriter that could break down messages into the German language for their officers. It was a brilliantly conceived device, but, as it turned out, not infallible. Polish cryptographers had broken its secrets as early as 1933. However, by the onset of Hitler's war, Germany had upped its security by changing the cipher system daily. London mathematician Alan Turing, taking a full-time role at top-secret Bletchley Park in Buckinghamshire at the outbreak of the war, cracked the new Enigma code, and with the help of fellow code-breaker Gordon Welchman, invented a machine known as the bomb. Using the bomb, B-O-M-B-E, the Allies could cipher the Enigma messages, started in July of 1940, just in time for the German invasion of Britain. A great example of how the brains are often the unsung heroes of the war. Other examples being the U.S. cracking the Japanese naval codes in the Pacific War, and their development of the atomic bomb, which helped to end World War II finally. And that was developed by J. Robert Oppenheimer and Army Lieutenant J. Leslie Groves. When it comes to wars, may the best brains win every time. Fully expecting the German onslaught in July, the RAF Fighter Command, under the direction of Air Chief Marshal Dowding, had two main groups waiting to do battle. Eleven Group had its headquarters at Northold, an outer suburb of London. Its job was to defend the south coast of England from just west of the Isle of Wight through the Straits of Dover and along the banks of the Thames River to London itself. The other, headquartered near Nottingham, was headquartered near Nottingham in the English Midlands, you know, Robin Hood country. Ah, how I enjoyed doing those adventures of Robin Hood short stories at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Twelve Group's job was to defend the area from north of the Thames estuary through the industrial heartland of England up the North Sea coast to Yorkshire. By July of 1940, 11 and 12 groups had 640 combat fighters, mostly Hawker Hurricanes, followed by Spitfires, with a few old Defiants mixed in. The Luftwaffe had 824 fighters, 656 Messerschmitts, and 168 ME-110s. I see hands going up. I know I said earlier that the Luftwaffe had a 4-to-1 advantage. This isn't even 1.5-to-1. Here's the answer. The chief target of the RAF fighter planes would be the Luftwaffe's bombers, the total of which the Germans had available was 1,191, which included 316 Stuka dive bombers. Air Marshal Dowding said grimly, Our young men will have to shoot them down at the rate of 5-to-1. In other words, it was British fighter planes only that could defend against Germany's fighters and bombers combined. Those numbers come out to 3-to-1. But Dowding at that time must have known more German fighters would be on the way soon. So that 5-to-1 was probably accurate. After the lull following Dunkirk, the Luftwaffe sent some bombers over the channel to harass targets, and these were escorted by Messerschmitts, for the purpose of seeing what the British fighters could do. There's a story that occurred over the Hampshire Downs when German ace Adolf Galand spotted a Spitfire and dived on it. To him it looked like a sitting duck, cruising a thousand feet below. But the RAF had seen Galand and put his plane into a tight turn. Galand tried to follow him, but Galland found that his ME-109 would not take the stress. By the time he straightened out, his easy target had vanished. When he got back to his base in coastal France, he compared his notes with fellow pilot Werner Mulders. He, too, had sighted an easy target, 
only to discover that the British pilot had slithered out of his line of fire like an eel doubling up to escape a shark, as he put it. Galan later recalled, We were no longer in doubt that the RAF would prove a most formidable opponent. And I mentioned later recalled, because had he said anything else, it would have been executed. Goering's propaganda machine was not to be defied. As Alfred Price noted in his book The Spitfire Story, the performance of the Spitfire over Dunkirk came as a surprise to the Jaguar, although the German pilots retained a strong belief that the 109 was the superior fighter. The British fighters were equipped with eight Browning 303 caliber machine guns, while most Messerschmitts had two 20mm cannons supplemented by two 7.92mm machine guns. This larger caliber was much more effective than the 303, and during the battle it was not unknown for damage to German bombers to limp home with up to 200 303 caliber hits. At some altitudes, the Messerschmitt could outclimb the British fighter. It could also engage in vertical plane, negative G maneuvers without the engine cutting out because its DB601 engine used fuel injection. This allowed the 109 to dive away from attackers more readily than the carburetor-equipped Merlin. On the other hand, the BF-109E had a much larger turning circle than its two foes. But the British pilots learned and later shared a lot of what they learned over Dunkirk, enough to cause the total destruction of the proud and mighty Luftwaffe. The real air war over Britain started on July 10, 1944, and in the beginning the German pilots had the advantage. The Brit pilots had not quite learned everything they needed to know, and their opponents had been in constant air wars over Spain, so they were very well practiced. In the first ten days of air clashes, starting with the opening day over Hellfire Corner near Dover on July 10, 1940, the RAF lost 50 fighters. Not a good sign for the RAF, which already had fewer numbers of planes. Yes, the RAF had shot down 92 German planes in those 10 days, but the scoreboard at command showed that only 28 of those were the deadly Messerschmitt fighters. The rest were bombers. They needed to change the odds of fighters against fighters. There was a huge scramble over the channel to rescue downed pilots. For the RAF, pilots were much more valuable than planes, for there was a limited number of trained pilots. Six of them died on the 10th day, July 20th, the largest daily number yet recorded. In the channel, the Germans used seaplanes to pick up downed airmen, both German and British, and to the RAF, a captured British pilot was as good as a dead pilot to them. They weren't coming back before the war's end. The Brits were using motor launches, mostly fishing boats, to rescue their pilots. One Spitfire pilot, Jeffrey Page, was badly burned when his plane was hit and set afire by an ME-109. His hands were badly burned to the bone. It was amazing that he could open his cockpit cover and a little later his parachute. The flames from the cockpit fire had also scorched his uniform and upper body, but he was alive, drifting in the water with his life jacket and being circled by a small boat. Through his agony he heard a voice calling out, Who are you, a Jerry or one of ours? Through his racked, burned lips, he managed to spurt out, Stupid effing bastards! Pull me out! He was immediately pulled aboard. One of the crew said, The minute you swore, mate, we knew you was the RAF. There's a scene in the aforementioned 1969 movie, Battle of Britain, 
that does a good job of portraying that pilot's circumstance as he escapes from his burning plane, his hands and arms on fire. By the way, that movie had some major stars, all of which played their parts well without stealing scenes. Harry Andrews, Michael Caine, Sir Lawrence Olivier, and Robert Shaw, who you might remember in the role of the captain of the Orca in Jaws. And stay tuned, because I'm working on that movie's backstory now as well. Also, back to this story, I was reading somewhere in this pile of some moments shared by the cast and the large crew of technical advisors, guys who had flown for the RAF. When 25-year-old Michael Caine mentioned he hoped he looked old enough for the role, and most of the advisors mentioned that he looked much older than most of them at that time. Most of them were 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. By the way, you can catch that movie free at YouTube. Make sure to get the MGM 1969 version first. There are a few other versions. One made as recently as 2020. In the July Battles in the Sky, the RAF had to learn the hard way that they had to change their methods. For instance, they had been trained to fly in tight formations, but that gave them no time to look around for the enemy and no room to move when he came at them. The Germans flew in looser formations, giving them a wider field of vision and more room to move. The RAF pilots caught on quickly and developed the Finger 4 formation, with each pilot in that formation picturing himself with the tip of the finger of an outstretched hand. My name is Gerald Stapleton. My first name given to me by my parents was Basil. And I had so much trouble at school with Basil. So I elected to have Gerald, which is my second name. I first was interested in the Air Force in 36 when Alan Cobham's Air Circus came to our school and landed on the football field. They were all biplanes. And my brother had joined the Air Force, my elder brother, and we'd all be, always been in competition, so I decided to join it. I joined it in January 39. And the people who joined it at the same time, at the same age, I was 18 and a half when I joined, we were very lucky having a year's training, virtually a year's training on all sorts Tiger Moths, Hearts, Audaxes, they're bigger biplanes. And then we went to an operational training unit where we went on to um, Harvard's and Hurricanes. After that, you were posted to a squadron. I was initially posted to 32 Squadron at Biggin Hill and then was posted to 603. And we had older chaps there who'd been flying in peacetime with the squadron. These were the people we felt sorry for because they had families, wife, children, and they were the first ones to go. They were good pilots, but they weren't good combat pilots because we'd never had any experience. Although we did shoot a couple of German aircraft down in Scotland, they were bombers. They weren't, they weren't dealing with fighters. Neither were, none of us were until we learned how to deal with them. In that period of time, we had quite a few casualties. When 603 went down to Hornchurch in 
late August 1940, and that's when we became engaged with the Battle of Britain. We didn't have any idea of combat against a large fleet of bombers and fighters. We started flying in threes, and three aeroplanes cannot stay together. Two can. So after very bad casualties in the first week, we started flying in finger fours. When we say finger fours, we mean that formation, exactly like that. Two and two. And our casualties then started to drop. Radar would identify foreign aircraft, but they couldn't identify what models they were. They didn't know whether they were bombers or fighters. So until they crossed the coast where the uh, observer corps on the ground could say, there are, those are bombers and those are fighters, and phone that information back to control, we were sitting on the ground waiting for us to be scrambled. And um, then all we had to do was climb for height. They already had height. They had their operational height. And um, that was a disadvantage we found ourselves in. The one advantage we did have was that Germans were flying over enemy territory. We lost over 500 pilots in the Battle of Britain, but we lost over 800 aircraft. The crash landed in Britain, but the pilots were okay. The German pilots weren't. They were taken prisoner of war. And that's one of the reasons why the Battle of Britain had the outcome it had. There was no dogfighting. It was in and out. And reform, the leader of your flying unit would say, right, we'll reform over Hornchurch or Biggin Hill at 20,000 feet. And then you'd get a few of the aircraft in, in, the, in the squadron to get over Biggin or Hornchurch, reform and go back and see if there's anything you could find. But there wasn't one German bomber formation that was stopped before it got to its target. They were all shot down going home. There's the time element again. That's when they were shot down. The longer it went on, the more you were untouchable. You know, you'd have to chat, friends killed and that sort of thing, but why you were lucky, you didn't, didn't answer any questions. And I know some people who were guilty of surviving. Don't include me among that lot. I wasn't guilty of surviving. And it was pure luck that anybody in the Air Force survived. Skill, that amount, but that's all. And I was shot down once. That cannon shell could have come through my fuselage and hit the uh, armor plate on behind me. And it throws the armor plate forward. It would have thrown me forward. I wouldn't have been able to get out of the aeroplane. But it was lucky that it wasn't it through the fuselage. It was lucky it was in the wing. I, I was taken prisoner of war. I was shot down in Germany. And no blood. I jumped out of a Spitfire at night. I was shot down during the Battle of Britain. I was shot down in Germany in typhoons. No wounds. If that's not lucky, I'd like to find out what is. 
we had a very narrow view of the whole thing. And uh, when you're you know, 20 years old and in, in a Spitfire, it was exhilarating. You're firing at an airplane. No question of firing at a body. You can't see the people. And I think pilots were relieved when they saw a parachute. Didn't matter which side it was. You know, that, that was a good thing that the chap got out. And you didn't have time for regrets. And if you thought it was going to happen to you, you wouldn't have been any good, would you? You can see that. If you were scared, uh-uh. And you always thought, it'll never happen to me. It didn't. You can teach monkeys to fly better than that. Going into London with 24 hours off, from 12 to 12, going to a nightclub where you had to belong to a wine club to get liquor, and then going on to a Turkish bath where you'd get there around about 11 o'clock, you'd have a Turkish bath, sweat in the steam room, your cold plunge, upstairs you'd have a cot to sleep in after a massage. And by God, you felt good the next day. Those are the things that I remember. The skies over the English Channel began to resemble food chain warfare, if you will, beginning with the merchant ships on the water trying to deliver supplies to England, the German Stukas above them with full intention to dive bomb and sink them, the Spitfires and Hurricanes diving on the Stukas, and the ME-109s even higher up trying to swoop down on the Spitfires and Hurricanes, leaving the Spitfires to pursue them while the Hurricanes pursued the diving Stukas. Vapor trails ended up being painted all over the sky, scenes that were well portrayed, by the way, in that movie. RAF squadrons in combat zones bordering the channel were flying four to five sorties a day. Exhausting. This was pure courage on display. The dogfights generally lasted for 10 to 15 minutes and were being watched by civilians, boat crews, and even German soldiers on the bluffs between Calais and Boulogne, as well as the British Home Guard and BBC reporters. British Air Marshal Dowding firmly believed that there would be an invasion if the RAF couldn't quickly gain superiority. By the end of July, he could see in the statistics that they were showing many more kills than the Luftwaffe were. All they needed was a little more time, and the good news was that the British aircraft workers had produced nearly 500 more new Spitfires. On the German side, Goering was the only man who saw the actual lost figures, and there was no way he was going to report this to the Reich Marshal. Instead, he reported that things were going right on plan. They were way ahead in kills. The RAF was now completely crippled, and boat passage through the channel had been totally cut off. Neither of which was true. And phase two of the invasion should begin immediately. That meant the bombing of all British manufacturing facilities and bases and ports. Then the destruction of major cities would begin. He took his false figures to Hitler the next day, and Hitler approved but with one proviso. He ordered that the Luftwaffe must not initiate any terror raids against British civilians unless he gave the order. He added, Bombings to cause mass panic, he declared, must be saved for the last. 
This, Hitler said, applied directly to London. Hitler gave August 5th as the date of what he termed the Eagle Attack. And London, as well as most of Britain, was in for some very hard times. Join us next week for Part 2 of 1001's The Battle of Britain. Next week, Sunday at noon. I'm giving you Spotify listeners a chance to comment on this episode, and we'll read your comments after Part 2. You might have a story or some facts you'd like to add, and Spotify's a good place to do it. You Apple listeners can contribute comments in your reviews as well. And please do join us at our other 1001 podcast. We recently started narrating the Jack London story, White Fang, at 1001 Best of Jack London, where we have a number of Jack London stories. And in the case of White Fang, there's been a number of movies made, but there's nothing anywhere near as good as the book. If you're wondering where to start and you enjoy early boxing, try the Mexican or a piece of steak at 1001 Best of Jack London. If you want a South Sea adventure, try the story A Bunch of Knuckles. And we have over 100 Arthur Conan Doyle stories and all of the 52 Sherlock Holmes stories narrated at 1001 Sherlock Holmes stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Which is growing, by the way, by listener count so fast, I can't keep up with it. Check out all our 1001 podcasts. They're easy to search for, and you're bound to find a few that will become your favorites. I really enjoy listening to the radio versions of Tales of the Texas Rangers, which are now at 1001 Stories from the Old West and in the archives at 1001 Radio Days, as well as Dragnet, which is there as well. Thanks so much for joining us. Please share our show with others, and please help a friend to download at least one of our 1001 podcasts on their phone. That's the greatest way of telling a thanks for what we do. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll be back next Sunday at noon Eastern Time. See you then. My name is Paul Farms, and I flew Hurricanes with 501 Squadron during the Battle of Britain. I have to admit that uh, I did enjoy most of the Battle of Britain. It was... Um, after all, you've got to remember that we joined the Air Force, I did, and, and all the other VRs did, to uh, fly. To be able to fly several times a day, every day, in one of the finest aeroplanes going, what was, what was good. I'd gone up with the squadron, and, uh, and I was on the way back, and uh, suddenly coming towards me, I saw a JU-88 at the same height. I couldn't believe it. Anyway, I whipped round and followed him, gave him a few bursts, and he crashed. And the CO of the station took me over in the car, and I met the pilot, and uh, that was quite, quite fun. What did you say to the man that you just shot down and nearly killed? Did you shake his hand? I tried to, but he wouldn't shake hands. <clears throat> we lost 20, 20 pilots out of 60. And suddenly they said, well, where's that chap came here a couple of days ago? He didn't come back. It sounds like a very fragile way to live your life. <laughs> it was very fragile. Uh, but... Uh, Strangely enough, it was a good life. I enjoyed it. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.